Welcome to the Dinner Party Download. This is your icebreaker. Okay, here's a joke. What did the melancholy librarian say when a book fell on her head? I don't know what. I've only got my shelf to blame. I'm Rico Galliano. I'm Brendan Francis Newman from APM American Public Media. This is the Dinner Party Download, one hour of food, culture, and humor to fuel your weekend conversation. You just got a joke from author and librarian Annie Spence. That'll help break the ice. Shh, I'm sorry. Later, you'll hear her read from her new book, About Books. Plus, we'll speak with another author, National Book Award winner Jasmine Ward, about her new novel, Sing, Unburied, Sing. And coming up, a rock festival's worth of rock stars. Yeah. Matt Berninger of The National is here to answer your etiquette questions. And the band Future Islands plan a party playlist for people and pets. Perfect. Plus, Rico tastes the food of Portugal. Rats. You ate rats in Portugal? No, I'm, I'm just reminding you later we're going to talk to a documentarian about rats. Oh, yeah. yeah. But first, small talk. All week long, you've been hearing these headlines. The Justice Department announcement that the government is ending the DACA program, deferred action for childhood arrivals. Irma is now a Category 5 hurricane. In a deal to keep the government running, President Donald Trump sided with Democrats. Now for something you might not have heard, we are speaking with Amy Choi. She is co-host of the wonderful podcast, The Mashup Americans. It is about culture and identity. Amy, what story are you going to be talking about at parties this week? Well, I'm going to be talking about the fact that I'm going to live longer than mm-hmm. most other people in the world because I walk fast. Because you walk fast? Okay, that's very... I feel so celebratory about this. There was a study that was just released from Leicester University that showed that being a slow walker, I don't know if okay. either of you would define yourself as a slow Heck no. walker. What are you looking at me for? Hell no. I've had like... relationships end over the speed of my walk. Yeah. <laughs> no, we speed through life. Well, good, because slow walkers are 2.4 times more likely to die from heart disease than fast walkers. Oh, not from getting run over. No. Well, so (laughs) the study had 400 and almost 30,000 people Mm. analyze the speed of their stroll, followed them over six years, and, Mm. um, you know, evaluated their death rates. And regardless of all other factors, smoking, BMI, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, speed of walking was an excellent independent Mm. indicator of somebody's long-term health. What's weird about that is, you know, people like me and Brendan, one of the reasons we walk fast is because we're stressed out. We want to get where we're going as fast as possible. Doesn't that have a bad impact on your heart? Wouldn't slow walkers be more cool and mellow? Well, sure. Excessive amounts of stress could probably kill you, much like many other things. But I will Mm. say, I think what the study is showing is that being active is better for you. So we're getting more exercise. So actually, could you even live longer if not only did you walk fast, but you wrestled to the ground slow walkers? Because that's like adds another mm. workout oh, totally. to your walk. Some sort of All right. cardiovascular extra element. Sure. Watch out, slow walkers. Yeah. We're coming for you. We're going to live forever. <laughs> Amy, thanks for the small talk. Thank you. All right, this party's underway, and that means we need some music. Indeed, and here are some song suggestions from Future Islands, the Baltimore bands known for synth-driven pop and dark lyrics. Back in 2014, Pitchfork named their song Seasons Waiting for You. You've heard it. They called that song the best of the year. And they're on tour now supporting a new album called The Far Field. Here they are with a playlist to please pets and their friend Ed. Hey, this is Sam. This is William. Hey, this is Garrett. And we are Future Islands. And welcome to our dinner party! So we're going to be back from tour. We're throwing a cookout party. Bring your pets. <laughs> Just so you know, my chihuahua Shelby's going to be there, and my cats Murray and Cabin. 
Garrett's cat, Buttercup. Can I bring my cat, too? There's a really awesome cat that lives in my house, and I think maybe Chanix might want to go to the party. Chanix is a punk rock princess. She grew up at the Tribal House, a noise house in Baltimore. Um, and when that house dissolved, uh, we let her move in for uh, five bucks a month. They're all going to be in the mix. So bring your little buddies if you can make it. This is our pet-friendly dinner party soundtrack. You guys just walked into the house, and my cats are terribly afraid of you, and my dog is barking nonstop at you guys. Hey, William, maybe you can uh, cool out your, your crazy dog and uh, your two wild cats and maybe throw in some tuning. Yeah, so I just popped on this record. The album is called Belladonna. It's by Daniel Lenoir. And the track that I'm playing in particular is uh, a song called Frozen, which is this really awesome mix of, it's like a reggae song, but it's kind of country because he's playing the pedal steel over top of it. For me, I never thought of juxtaposing like kind of a reggae vibe with uh, pedal steel. Actually, I, I really wanted to put pedal steel on a song on our new record, and the guys kind of weren't really into the idea, so we didn't. I think I need to use the restroom. This conversation is making maybe, me uncomfortable. Maybe we can get Daniel Lenoir to play on it. That would be sick. What's going on, Garrett? How's your tank top feeling? Tank top's good. I'm sweating. I'm running around manning the grill what do you got on the grill two tiers of grillage one for the mediators one for the non-mediators we got the cold brews we got some clear beers for our sober bros and the laughter and the confusion from the previous lap steel conversation where everyone's trying to leave they need a little a little relaxation after their first course of strange kebabs has hit the table so i decided to put on a song by brian eno from the album apollo called an ending Parentheses, Ascent. Uh, it's sort of just an, a sound escape to what I imagined being in a, a spaceship orbiting the moon um, from like some sort of Apollo mission. But it's very beautiful, very just relaxing. You don't have to think much. You can just stop talking to people and listen. And the idea and poetry of that title is something that comes back to us too. Yeah. Because I think that's part of being a musician. Oh God. <laughs> just always, always leaving, always arriving, always coming home. Maybe your home is somewhere that isn't where your stuff is. I've gone around and like turned all the lights off. We just have candles going. It's not romantic. It's just we got candles scented and otherwise. But it's weird because it's 1 p.m. and the sun is out. (laughs) Yeah, so it's just a chill vibe. But we know that uh, after everybody drinks, uh, Dan Deacon's going to start spinning... um, What's the one that Ed knows the lyrics to? This is how we do it. Montel Jordan. Jordan. Montel Jordan. So Dan puts on Montel Jordan, and then Ed Schrader comes up, and he sings the entire song word for word. At that point, everyone's losing their This is how we do it. It's Friday. 
Things have gone from chill to crazy. But that's not even a song that we chose. That's just an, that's just an extra song. We snuck one in on you guys. <laughs> okay. Everybody's chilling. It's like dusk. Oh, it's it, dusky. Yeah, because yeah, it was an afternoon dinner party. Yeah, it's, it's really chill. And I want to put on this special record. So I throw on one of my all-time favorite records um, called Music for Egon Scheele and just let the first song play. It's called Family Portrait. The cello, which is probably my favorite sound um, or my favorite sounding instrument, we've been able to have it on all of our records uh, since our second record. The cello can sound like a chainsaw um, or it can sound like uh, a violin. It can sound like the human voice. It's given me ideas about how I can push my, my own voice or, or push a melody or a cadence, a lyrical cadence um, in certain ways. Somehow, someone brought out like 30 beanbag chairs <laughs> and everyone is just laying full, happy. All the animals are passed out. Dude, what's Buttercup doing? Buttercup is upstairs asleep behind the chair. Okay, chill. Things are kind of slowing down, and uh, just to mess with us, our friends, they all go over to the music station, and they put on our third album, On the Water, because every musician knows it's pretty awkward to hear your own music. Uh, when you're anywhere in public, it's, it's awkward. And so just to mess with us, they put on... The song where I found you. But it's one of my favorite songs we've ever written. We don't really play it live very much at all. I don't know, there's there's an energy in that song that is unlike other songs that we've recorded, I think. I think it just comes with the room, the house that we were at, the space that we were all in. That song still makes me cry to this day when I hear it um, in passing. When my, when my friends put it on at a dinner party, it, uh, that song finds me crumpled up in the corner reminiscing. Uh, and it's very much a song which you sometimes go back on. A lot of times you want to say, you know, let's push forward with our lives, let's forget about those old things and go on. But that is a song um, that asks us to look back and remember these, these exact moments. Um, which I think are also important, like uh, this dinner party with our friends. Let's remember when Ed did the Michael Jackson spin singing Montel Jordan, and it was awesome.
Samuel Herring, Garrett Wellmers, and William Cashin of Future Islands. They are on tour now. By the way, they had a great idea to invent a seltzer keg. You nice. can hear, yeah, you can hear bonus audio of them talking all about it at dinnerpartydownload.org. All right, coming up, the Nationals' Matt Berninger tells the truth about encores, and National Book Award winner Jasmine Ward ah. tells hard truths about race mm. when the Dinner Party Download continues. Welcome back to the Dinner Party Download, the culture show that helps you win your dinner party. I'm Rico Galliano. I'm Brendan Francis Noonan. Later, Matt Berninger, frontman for the band The National, shares fashion tips from some bad seeds. But first, mm. let's meet our guest of honor. All right, and this week it's author Jasmine Ward. Raised in coastal Mississippi, she was the first in her family to go to college. That's where she started writing. Her second novel, Salvage the Bones, informed by her experience enduring Hurricane Katrina, won the National Book Award. Her latest novel, Sing Unburied Sing, is a ghost story, a road trip novel, and a family saga. Mm. Our narrators are Jojo, a sensitive preteen, and Leone, his immature, drug-addicted mother. They and others go on a trip through Mississippi to pick up JoJo's white father from prison. When we spoke, I first asked Jasmine one of our two standard questions. Tell us something we don't know about you. I have really bad taste in movies, <laughs> in books. Too. Really? Yeah, like secretly. It's what do you mean bad taste? Like trashy? Really yes, yes. <laughs> I love trashy stuff. But I think that my like bad taste, it's not contained by boundaries. One of my favorite movies is The Fifth Element. Oh. Yes. That's not horrible. I loved it for years. <laughs> I loved it for years. You know what else? You know what other movie? Every time I catch it, I watch it. The Happening. The Happening? Yes. I don't know The Happening. <laughs> <laughs> You're really glad that you don't know. You should be happy. You're glad that you do not know The Happening. The Happening is the M. Night Shy. I'm going to pronounce his last name. But the movie with Mark Wahlberg in it, where oh, the right. trees were killing people. That's right. That's right. Something about it is so appealing <laughs> to me. Every time I own it, I own it on DVD. Well, that, this makes it, this is the real origin of your ghost every, story. <laughs> every time it comes on TV, I always watch it. I'm like, ooh, the happening is on. <laughs> I don't think that counts. Well, maybe it counts as research. <laughs> yeah. I mean, you're talking about how maybe you have questionable taste. Mm -hmm. No one who would read your writing would mm -hmm. assume that. I mean, mm -hmm. you're, it's rich. It's literary. It's uh -huh. hefty. And I was wondering, you know, how someone writes so beautifully about such ugly things. I mean, mm -hmm. there's so many moments in the book from mm -hmm. ugly but small moments about the slaughtering of an animal mm -hmm. to really deep ugliness between family. And mm -hmm. you somehow, your writing is beautifully wrought. This will be a strange answer, but I think that's a natural result of my impulses as a writer as far as the kind of prose mm -hmm. that I love and mm -hmm. that I appreciate and that I emulate combined with the subjects and the topics that are mm -hmm. important to me. Social injustice yeah, that's and these heavier the themes yeah. with this kind of literary training. Exactly. Well, it's a potent blend. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> Tell me the spark that brought this book into being. JoJo was the spark that brought this book into being because, you know, I was casting about for ideas for my next novel. And I heard this question. And the question was, what would it be like to grow up as a 13-year-old mixed-race boy mm. in the modern South. Like, what would that be like? Why mixed-race? I grew up in southern Mississippi, mm -hmm. and the southern Mississippi that I knew when I was a child through the 80s into the mid-90s, mm -hmm. and that's when I left for college. Like, that Mississippi is very different from, I think, the Mississippi that I know um, now. At least on the surface... It seems like a very different place because 
there seems to be more acceptance of interracial relationships mm-hmm. now. But <laughs> I was wondering about like the surface quality of that, mm-hmm. right? Because I have heard stories, you know, from various people, friends of mine, cousins, people in my community, that the old assumptions about black people and their being worthless and and the old like prejudices and racism, like they're still there underneath the surface, right? Mm. And so I think that I was interested in writing about this mixed race boy who has to struggle with those tensions, yeah. but in a very personal way. Yeah. Right. The core of this book is kind of a road trip. Mm-hmm. They're going up to this penitentiary. They're doing other nefarious things yeah. to fund that trip. Mm-hmm. And they're going to Parchman Penitentiary, yes. which is actually a, a real place. Yes. Tell me about that place and why you chose to put it at the center of this book. So Parchman Prison is the Mississippi State Prison. It used to be called a farmhouse. Yes, it was yeah. a farm. It's a Parchman yeah. Prison farm. Yeah. The reason why is because for many decades, it was a working plantation, basically. <laughs> 90% of the inmates who were sent to Parchman Prison, they were all black men, mm-hmm. basically. Mm-hmm. There were some, there was a very tiny number of black women that were sent to Parchman. And then there was an even tinier, you know, white male population mm. of prisoners. And once they were sent there, they were worked like they were slaves. They were also yeah. tortured like they were slaves. They were also killed like they were slaves. I mean, their lives were totally expendable. Yeah. Um, it is not a working farm. I mean, you know, it's not a working, yeah. like, you know, plantation It's, it's farm now just now. a prison. Yes. There are some really colorful characters that mm-hmm. come from Parchman. Mm-hmm. Are those from history or are those from your brain? Yes. You, and- no, those are from history. I read a book called Worse Than Slavery mm-hmm. by David Oshinsky. Um, and that book is all about Parchment Prison. And so that's where I found a couple of those characters. Yeah. The character that sticks with me the most is probably Hogjaw. He was an actual white inmate in the prison, I guess, who was somewhat famous because I don't think he, that he had multiple escapes, but he would they would let him out of parchment, mm-hmm. you know, and then he would like kill somebody or kill multiple people and then they'd send him back. And then they'd let him out and then they'd send him back. And yeah. he was like known for being like particularly cruel. You know, I mean with that name, he's just like a figure out of a nightmare. The interesting thing about Parchman, mm-hmm. and we know this because Jojo's grandfather mm-hmm. spent some time there, it turns out. The prisoners are they're supposed to work yes. at the prison. Yes. Given the task of tracking down other people that yes. that escaped. Yes. There are many horrible things about the history of Parchman. But one of the most horrible things about Parchman is that inmates were trusted is that's a a funny word to use, yeah. but they were pressed. Um, <laughs> yes. They were pressed yeah. to be to not only like work in the field. But they were also made into collaborators. Yes, yeah. because they were given guns and made to guard the prisoners. Yeah. And if you were one of the gunmen, if you were chasing a, you know, a, an escaping inmate, and if you shot that inmate or if you killed that inmate in some way and prevented that inmate from escaping, then you were granted your freedom. Ugh, that was so diabolical. Yeah. Uh, so... It's a road trip. It's a ghost mm-hmm. story. And it's also kind of a family saga. You write so powerfully in, in your other books as well about the kind of vulnerability of black people in the South. Mm-hmm. I was reading another interview of yours and your daughter came your, mm-hmm. came into your room, your writing room, and you, and you live in the coastal mm-hmm. South. And uh, I just – that brings to mind the question of what, about your choice to stay yeah. in, in that area. 
I've been thinking about that a lot lately. I mean, especially the political climate in this country right now, which is really horrible. And um, I've been thinking a lot about it, and I haven't come to an answer about whether or not it's best for me to stay where I am. Mm. I've just been wrestling with this idea that, you know, maybe the South is not the best place for me and for them. And then I think about leaving and I think, well, what am I going to do about my mom? What am I going to do about my sisters and my nephews and my nieces? Like my grandmother and, you know, my cousins. Like what, how do I leave everyone that I love? And then part of me asks like, okay, so where do you go? Right? Where are you safe? Jasmine Ward. Her new novel is called Sing Unburied Sing. It's worth your time, as is her earlier book, Salvage the Bones, which is about life before, during, and after a hurricane, an all-too-relevant topic this week. Be safe out there, everybody. And readers, if you want to hear our equally illuminating conversations with authors like Salman Rushdie and Marlon James, head to dinnerpartydownload.org or subscribe to our podcast via your favorite app. And now, for a film that also examines race and many other issues in a way we're pretty sure you've never seen before. Yeah, it's a new documentary. It's called Rat Film, and it takes Baltimore's long-standing rat control problem as a metaphor for other social ills, from institutional racism to economic inequality. It is an impressionistic, kind of creepy mix of cinema verite and art film, and it's earned its creator, Theo Anthony, comparisons to filmmakers like Werner Herzog. The movie lands in theaters September 15th, when Rico spoke with Theo, he first asked how he got interested in rats. It was never, I'm going to do a movie about rats. I had this really earnest desire to learn more about the city of Baltimore following the the uprisings in the spring of 2015 um, after mm-hmm. the death of Freddie Gray. Just trying to learn like why my city looked the way that it did. and Kind of how the city was divided along racial and, and class lines, you mean? Yeah, trying to understand the history of it. And I coincidentally started doing these short projects about different people who killed rats in Baltimore, and I actually started to see a lot of overlap between the two histories and the two topics. Why would one start making short films about pest control? Uh, Well, the easy answer, there's a very specific shot. It's actually the first shot of the film that is a shot of a rat in a trash can. Oh, right. right. Um, I came home from the bar one night, and I heard a sound in my driveway. There was this rat stuck at the bottom of the trash can, and I whipped out my iPhone, and balanced it right at the top and the rat could jump up and just barely not reach the top of it and it was trapped there and just jumping again and again and again it's really and freaky shot actually yeah it's, and i just had it in my phone i fell asleep i woke up i totally forgot that i had even filmed it and i just was scrolling through my phone the next day and i found this really really haunting piece of footage that just stayed with me And about the same time, I started reading about this group of um, pest control workers uh, called the Rat Rubout Team, these Ghostbuster-like figures in Baltimore that are hired by the city, tasked with controlling the entire rat population in Baltimore. And I started a project with them, and then all of a sudden I started reading about the history of rat poison, and modern rat poison was invented in Baltimore, and it started to feel like something was there. The way you describe the genesis of the film kind of makes me understand a little bit more about the structure of the film. It feels like a collage. You weave all these images and sequences together without necessarily explaining how they all relate to your central theme. You've got video game sequences, historical photos of Baltimore, present-day interviews. 
among them are actually people who have rats as pets. There's one scene where there's just you just show a guy watching TV with a rat actually sitting on his head. What are you trying to get at with with those sequences? Um, yeah, I mean, I think I really wanted to show the diversity of different relationships to rats, and I think that to a large extent, you you can actually really tell a lot by people by their relationship to rats. Um, hmm. Did you have the privilege of growing up where rats weren't an infestation, and that you were allowed to have that distance to form a bond with them, or uh. you know, did you fall asleep at night, you know, hearing rats in your walls and think of them as these feared yeah. vermin? Okay, so where were we? Ah, rat-proofing the room. So yeah, this is our playroom where our rats get their free-range time. Usually I give them at least an hour, hour and a half a day, as much as I can, as much as time allows. You're very generous. <laughs> yes, I'm, I'm generous. Um, one of the other story threads that is it's very, kind of very slowly revealed in the film, but it seems to me to be one of the most important ones, it's a dispute. There's a historically true dispute between two Baltimore scientists in the mid-20th century, it seems like, who had different ideas of how to control the rat population. One of them was named Richter, and the other guy was named Davis. First of all, you want to explain the dispute that the two of them had about how to deal with rats? Yeah, absolutely. Um, Dr. Kurt Richter was a very famous biologist at Johns Hopkins University in like the 30s and 40s into the 50s. He is known as the father of modern rat poison, or the Pied Piper of Baltimore. And basically, he was this proponent of poisoning your backyard and that the more poison, the better, and extinguishing yard by yard rat populations. And this libertarian, hitch yourself up by your bootstraps and poison your own backyard type mindset. And what David Davis really realized is like, actually, the more you poison rats, the more natural resources and the more food is available for other rats. And so mm. the quicker you poison rats, the quicker the population rebounds. And what he found is that if you look at the conditions where rats thrive, dirty alleyways, leaky water systems, crumbling walls, that if you actually improve the quality of these uh, human conditions and make it better to live for humans, you actually decrease rat populations as well. What to you is the significance of those two obviously very different approaches as they relate to this film? Yeah, I mean, I think it's just the core of a lot of policy debate today. I think uh, you see a lot of government initiatives that place an undue burden on the individuals working in a really rigged system. You know, like mm -hmm. the poor, if only they worked a little harder, if only they were able to, again, like hitch themselves up by their bootstraps and get to college, that it's this very privileged mindset that the fate of the individual is in their hands. I think what the beauty of Dr. Davis's approach is, is saying, well, let's look at these systemic causes of inequality and, and start by fixing those and see where we end up. A few reviews have compared this film to the work of Werner Herzog, which kind of seems on point knowing that you attended Herzog's rogue film school. Mm. Which, if people don't know about this, among other things, he, he claims that in addition to teaching filmmaking techniques, he'll also teach you how to pick locks. Um, <laughs> what was this like? I've always wanted to talk to a student of that school. Yeah, I, it wasn't so much like a filmmaking seminar, like this life seminar of just, uh, I don't know. It it was like 30 or 40 of the most interesting people, animators to documentary filmmakers to, we had a quantum physicist in the room. Mm. And it was like this sort of intellectual summit in this Hilton hotel in like Glendale and then you know Werner Herzog sort of strides in and you know it, it he's not teaching anything you don't learn any tips or tricks he's teaching a fierce self-reliance and 
finding the strange in these very familiar settings. Is there one uh, basic maxim that you find yourself living by? One is name the glory. He would always he'd say that, like, name the glory again and again. Name, just name the glory. What does that mean? It means that you're not responsible for creating, like, the glory of the universe. The glory of the universe is already out there, and the most divine task that you can do is just name it and just articulate language to describe that glorious experience. It's something that I think about a lot, mm. that I'm not trying to create anything new in a documentary, that the world is... The world is a lot of things, but it's an incredibly interesting place, and it just needs to be described. Theo Anthony, his new documentary, Rat Film, hits theaters September 15th. And New Yorkers, you can catch a free preview by standing on basically any subway platform and just looking (laughs) down at the tracks. It's creepy, but true. All right, coming up, Matt Berninger of the band The National tells us about life in the rock and roll fast lane. There's not a whole lot to do on the bus other than just go crawl in your bunk and you sleep, and it's great. I love it. Hardcore. Oh, man. When the dinner party download continues. Welcome back to the Dinner Party Download, the show that gives you an edge in your weekend conversations. I'm Brendan Francis Noonan. I'm Rico Galliano. In a few minutes, you'll hear me go drinking in Portugal. It's an adventure. Plus, we hear a librarian admit there's a book she hasn't read. But first, yeah, I know. But first, it's time for our weekly etiquette lesson. Yes, each week you send us your questions about how to behave. And here to answer them this week is Matt Berninger, the frontman for the band The National. Yes. They got their start around 1999 playing small gigs in Cincinnati. Since then, the band has earned a Grammy nomination, open for then-President Obama during several speeches. (laughs) And this week, they're releasing their seventh and latest album called Sleep Well Beast. Here's a clip from the single, Day I Die. I don't need you, I don't need you, besides I barely ever see you anymore. And when I do, it feels like you're only halfway there. Matt, welcome to the show. Thanks, guys. In that song, you are singing about what seems to be a relationship in which one of the parties in question is questioning how long the relationship will last. I have read that you wrote some of the lyrics on this album with your wife, Corinne. I mean, what is it like writing about relationships on the rocks with your partner? I mean, uh, I think all relationships are, are... You know, uh, hit the rocks sometimes. Yeah, never met. So, I don't know what you're talking about. That's insane. <laughs> yeah, the, a lot of the songs are about it, struggling to try to get off the rocks. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. And so she's into that, and and she also knows, <laughs> she's a writer. <laughs> she's a writer, and she gets that if you're not digging into like the soft parts of it, it's not worth writing about. Yeah. So you've been singing in the national for a couple decades now, and you guys Man. were part of a huge surge of indie bands who kind of blew up in the the mid 2000s. And you've met with great success. I wonder how, if at all, is success different now than you imagined it then? That's a good question. I mean, I, I mean, we did imagine, we did dream, you know, we did have fantasies of being rock stars. Yeah. Uh, and, and how much of it feels like it's what we dreamed of. A lot of it. I mean, a lot of it's awesome. Really? Yeah. I mean. Like, what's awesome? <laughs> Tell us the awesome parts first. Uh, 
I mean, it's awesome when people come up to you somewhere and, and stop you on the street and just say thanks, you know, for 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 songs that you made in your bedroom, you know, mm. and and say they had helped them, you know, and and then I also just get to kind of sleep whenever I want to, and my my I, I can tr- I'm in charge of my life, you know, I'm in charge of every hour of it. Yeah, except for when I'm on tour. But then even that, I'm kind of taking charge of doing it the way I need to do it. So, uh, yeah, so it's it's I'm not going to complain. That's pretty sweet. Um, you know, I, I think about some of those other bands, like Grizzly Bear, The Walkman, Death Cab. You, you, we've talked to a lot of them on this show, and you all seem remarkably well-adjusted. It's weird. Um, more, more so than rock and roll musicians of the past, I would dare to say. Yeah. Why do you think that is? I mean— Kurt Cobain died, you know, mm-hmm. and like he was like so many people's favorite thing, and it's scary as hell. And then all these other, you know, I think a lot of people are realizing that like you want to do it for a long time. It's so fun and and it's so rewarding and yeah. and it's so easy just to let it all fall away and, and and just let it all fall apart. And so we just we were just constantly trying to keep it from falling apart. Um, before we launch into our etiquette questions, which we should probably do here in a second, I'm wondering if you have any any pet peeves of audience behavior, perhaps when you're playing. No, um, I have pet peeves about myself, uh, and I, you know, I don't like watching so much my performance because I just look st- just so uncomfortable <laughs> so much of the time. And but no, I don't have any problem with with anything that's going on in the, in the audience. Cell phones, even like something that I... no. But I mean, I mean, I mean I, but 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 respect the people around you. I mean, I did go see a Nick Cave show, and a couple right in front of me were, were you know they had their backs to Nick, and they were filming themselves with their flash on with Nick <laughs> behind them, and they were like making out in front of the, the Nick Cave and the Bad Seeds performance and filming it right in front of me. So I'm watching them make a home movie for themselves. I'm like, real, so I just, I mean. My wife didn't want me to get into a fight, so I just I went and watched the the, the show from the aisle. Yeah, yeah I, I, don't, I don't know. That's all outside of my uh, jurisdiction. I'm not a cop. You're a rock star. All right. Well, we're still going to need you to police our listeners' etiquette questions. We've told them you were coming, and they submitted them. Okay. Uh, are you ready for these? Okay. This first question comes from Bob in Chicago, and Bob writes, Okay, here's my almost famous question. As in the movie Almost Famous. Got it. I assume there is a tour bus. I know you've started a family, and it made me wonder what kind of rules you set up for family and friends on the bus. That's a good question. I mean, yeah, we, we spend, like, bursts on buses and stuff like that. And some people's kids will come for, like, my daughters come for little little sections of it. And when they're kids on the bus, it's just everything revolves around them. It's just, like, whatever they need. And it's hard to live on a bus. And a kid, a kid has fun for a day or two, and then they're just bored because the buses park in, like, you know, just underneath arenas and in behind industrial complexes. But the bus rules, uh, our, our buses are usually pretty quiet because there's not a whole lot to do on the bus other than just go crawl into your bunk and it's like a little coffin and you just like shut out and you sleep and it's great. I love it. That's the way everybody uses it. It's like a little sanctuary. It's not like a party. Oh, I mean, man. we do have the other bus is the party one. That's the one Brian's on. <laughs> man, because I was going to say, you know, earlier you were talking about dreaming of being a rock star. It's like, this doesn't sound like the rock star dream. Napping at will? That sounds like a dream. <laughs> I go to the Devendorf bus every once in a while. That's <laughs> yeah, a good time. That's a good time. You're not going to give us details? It's been a lot of Steely Dan today on the Devendorf bus. Oh, uh, yes. <laughs> R.I.P. Walter Becker. Yeah. Here's another question. It comes from Christine in Brooklyn. Yeah. And Christine writes, my boyfriend doesn't really dress up. His closet's pretty much been the same for 10 years. How do I subtly nudge him to dress better on occasion without making him feel bad about how he looks now? Uh, you are fairly dapper gentleman. I mean, does, I, that's a good question. Um, I got to say, it is it is hard to find comfortable clothes that don't look sloppy. I mean, the, the truth is, if I could wear just cutoffs and... <laughs> 
tank tops all the time, I probably would. I actually do at home. But um, I don't know. Just take them somewhere. Um, I'm not going to promote any brands, but uh, <laughs> but, but uh, just take them somewhere and just, just say, I, I think you look good in this. Tell him you look, he looks hot in something, and he'll put it on. Yeah, I think. or or you can say another guy looks hot in something, and he'll put it mm-hmm. on. Maybe. Yeah, or just start hanging up pictures of the bad seeds are all around the house. Oh, yeah, that's right. He'll learn. Nick Cave and the bad seeds. Those guys, the older they get, the better they look. How is oh, that right. possible? Well, Jim Jim styled me for a photo recently. Uh, Who's this? Jim Sclavoon is a drummer. I've never looked so cool. He, we, he, the, the, the key was he took my collar outside of the, the jacket and put it on the outside. On the lapel. A little 70s style. On the, yeah, he, mm. But you need the right collar to do that. Yeah, you got to be careful with that. <laughs> you got to be careful. If you, if you get a little wimpy collar, it looks silly. But um, yeah. also, the, the Bad Seeds told me about the whole not buttoning the bottom button of the vest. Uh-huh. Mm-hmm. So I've learned, I've learned a lot of things from Jim Sclavunas. So there you go. Right. I also want to point out, I'm a little, Christine, she, his closet's been the same for 10 years. Yeah, Christine's been upset about about this for 10 years. And they're still just dating and she doesn't like his fashion. Guys, I feel like there's a cry for help in here. Oh, really? Like, I think they should all change it. Just, they should just switch clothes for a while. See what happens. <laughs> hey, there we go. There you That'll go. spice it up. Just change it all up. It's the modern age. All right. I want to ask this last question, which someone submitted via Twitter and it is just a great question that you're uniquely qualified to answer. Mm. And the question okay. is, should a band feel obligated to perform the obligatory encore or should they just play all the songs as one big set and be done with it? That's a good question. Um, it's a real awkward moment for everybody involved. Um, <laughs> and, uh, you know, it, there's a lot of bands that just don't do encores. I think the Strokes never did, I, you know, never did encores. The Wedding Present, one of my favorite bands. Oh, really? Yeah. They didn't do encores? Really? That's maybe you're right. Yeah. I saw them at Tramps. Yeah, um, great club. In, um, in New York City. And, and you're right. I can't, I don't think they did an encore. So I like it. I get it. But, but we do encores. I don't know. It's, it's it also, <laughs> we've done, we've, we've, we've done encores that no one asked for. So, uh, see, that's, I whatever. like, and also, uh, from your perspective, an encore is a moment to rest too, right? Oh, uh, yeah. I mean, I, I think of an, an encore mostly as a pee break, you know? And, uh, <laughs> and, uh, although I take those throughout the show whenever I want to anyway. You know, so I just like, right. Don't think uh, of it as an encore. Think of it as a pee break. Yeah. That's yeah. rock and roll. And then yeah. they come back and they're like, you know what? I feel great. Let's play our number one song. Yeah. I will say, Double encores, double encores. We actually did that a couple of times. It's just stupid. It's just like, what are you doing? You know. <laughs> what if the audience no, desperately wants a second encore? Uh, at that point, they're just faking it because they feel like they, everyone wants to go home at that point. Come on. <laughs> All right, Matt, thanks for telling our audience how to behave. Did I? I didn't mean to do that. Uh, yeah, thanks. I'm glad I was helpful. You're sleeping night and day. Matt Berninger of rock band The National. Their new album is entitled Sleep Well Beast, which coincidentally, Rico, is what my mother used to say when she tucked me in at night. Oh, that's nice. Yeah, it was sweet. And uh, folks, if you got an etiquette dilemma, we are here to help. Send in your questions via our website. It's dinnerpartydownload.org. Feeling defeated. And now, please welcome once again Matt Berninger. Yeah. Oh, I'm sorry. He's still in the restroom. Oh, later maybe. No, it's not working. I'm no holiday. And now the main course, the part of the show where we talk about food. So, Brendan, you know, I spent a few days in the Portuguese city of Lisbon this summer, mm-hmm. or as they call it, Lisboa. 
And uh, to make sure everybody on our staff didn't totally resent my good fortune, I decided to do a little work while I was there. It was very wise of you. Yeah, I met up outside a Portuguese lunch spot with a guy named Martim Vaz da Silva. He is a guide with the food tour company Culinary Backstreets, and he taught me about Portuguese drinking culture. Mm-hmm. So you drank yeah. and ate bar snacks and recorded it. That's exactly right. Rigorous. Uh, we started off with the quintessential Portuguese drink right after Martim taught me how to pronounce it. This drink is called ginjinha. Ginjinha? The, the drink ginjinha, exactly like you pronounced it. Yes. It's really fun to say. <laughs> yes, it is. I feel like it's also easy to say if you've had a whole bunch of them, so that helps. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it helps a lot. It's a, a friendly name. <laughs> um, and what is it exactly? Well, ginjinha, it's a typical drink that uh, start, well, originated in Lisboa, and it's a sour cherry liqueur. And when do you when do you drink this stuff? It's not like wine or something. You don't necessarily have it with a meal. No, normally it's more a drink that you drink in the middle of the day, for example, after lunch, or mainly after getting out of work, so relaxing with a friend. And it looks like it's just a straight shot. Do you ever have this on ice or anything? Uh, no, on ice, uh, no, but uh, it should be served chilled. That's very important. And you shouldn't shoot it. You should enjoy it. Little sips. And uh, it's not too strong, but it's not uh, weak as well. It has 23% alcohol and lots of sugar. So it's a pleasant drink. Just the right thing when you've just come out of work. You want something to announce to your body that it's time to relax, but you don't want to fall down drunk. Exactly. <laughs> All right, let's try a little bit of this. And what is, what's a typical Portuguese toast? Well, you can say it both ways. Uh, a nossa, which means to us, or uh, saúde. I'll do both. A nossa saúde. Okay, here we go. Ah, it's good. Sweeter than I thought. I don't know why I didn't think it was going to be as sweet, because it's a super dark red liqueur. It's something like, a, almost like a port. It is, uh, very, very sweet. So this is basically just lots of sour cherries, and the sour cherries are very sour, as the name indicates. And so they put lots of sugar and fire water. And what? this is why fire water, uh, it's the Portuguese grappa. So we call it bagaço. And grappa, as I recall, this is the, like, after you press grapes to make wine, then you press them some more, and then you're kind of down to the twigs. You distill those out, and it's like the strongest liquor that you get out of the grape. Yeah, it is. Grappa is quite strong. It's normally between 40 and 50% alcohol, so that's a lot. <laughs> So you kind of you water it down a little bit for this drink. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And we are drinking the first Xinjing ever that was found in, in the early 1800s. The brand is called Spinheira. All right. And then also we've got a plate here of what I'm told is the kind of typical Portuguese bar food. What is this? This is called termosos. Basically, this is a bean. Lupin bean. Um, kind of looks like a lima bean. Yeah, a lima bean or a fava bean, more or less. It's a cousin of those. And here, normally, we boil them, and then we put it in a brine with lots of salt. So these are salty that I'm looking at. They look raw from the outside, but they've been boiled and salted. Yeah, they've been boiled and salted, exactly. They have like a skin on them. Can I eat them skin and all? No, you have to peel it. So first you bite to break the, the peeling, and then you squeeze it out. Okay. But so watch you... out not to hit your face. <laughs> <laughs> I just saw... So basically, you, you bite the tip of the bean, and then... I just saw it. So you then squeeze it because you're trying to squeeze the meat out of the skin, but you, you squeezed it so hard that the bean shot out. Sometimes it shots and hits your friends in the table. 
I can imagine that um, school children have a great time with these things, firing yeah, at them. When I show. was a kid, I don't know if I eat them most or if I was having fun throwing them at my friends. <laughs> You'd probably use it as a weapon more than a food. Exactly. All right, I'm going to try to squeeze this out without it hitting me in the don't face. Don't hit me. <laughs> ah, I got it in my mouth, kind of in the corner. Oh, it's really good. It's very nice, actually, the salt after the sweet drink. Yeah. Do you normally drink this with the ginjinga or beer? I can imagine it being good with. Yeah, most with beer. This is very common in every. If you go to a bar or a esplanade here in Portugal in the summertime, they always bring this with the beer. It's good for the bars and the restaurants because you you keep continuing uh, to drink more beers. Um, one more thing you told me about this before. I just found it fascinating. Portuguese cuisine influenced Japanese cuisine. Explain this to me. That's right. In the 16th century, the Portuguese were the first Western civilization to get to Japan. And um, the Jesuit priests that were there, one of the things they, they introduced there was the light batter that nowadays the Japanese use to cook the tempura. And uh, tempura, our word in Portuguese for seasoning, is tempero. It's practically the same. Yeah, practically the same. Very, very close. We also introduced, um, it's amazing, but arigato, it's a word uh, that the Japanese derived from the Portuguese obrigado. Which means thank you. Exactly. Are you are you just making these things up now, though? I mean, how, how do I know that it didn't go the other way? No, man, no. As far as I'm told, and I am have investigated my facts. That where did you investigate your facts? At probably a Portuguese library. Well, yeah... Martin Vaz da Silva he is a guide in Lisbon for the excellent food tour company Culinary Backstreets. And Brendan, I checked it out, and it is true. The Japanese did adapt tempura mm. from a Portuguese style of frying. That's amazing. But arigato did not come from the Portuguese obrigado. That seems to be a myth. I had a feeling about that one. Yes. Also, the Portuguese did not invent oxygen. Yes. <laughs> so far as we know. to eavesdrop. Annie Spence has spent much of her life in the library, first as a ravenous reader and for the last 10 years as a librarian in and around the Midwest. This month, she publishes her debut book called Dear Fahrenheit 451. It's a collection of letters written to the books in her life, the ones she loves, the ones she despises, and the ones that fall somewhere in between. Today, we overhear her read a missive to one of the latter. Dear Anna Karenina by Leo Tolstoy. Dear Anna Karenina, I feel like I don't even know you. Maybe that's why I find it so difficult to say, I've been seeing someone else. Geez, I'm sorry. I know I've led you on. I asked my friends about you. I checked you out more than once. You came home with me. You stayed for a month. But while you were on my coffee table, looking so earnest and so very long... Eleanor and Park by Rainbow Rowell was in my bed, and then some Megan Abbott mysteries, then Dolly Parton's autobiography. Twice. Tonight, get ready for a season unlike anything you've ever seen before. I tried, I really did. Once I even picked you up and held you. I kept you on my lap while I watched The Bachelor. Everything has led to this moment, so that I could prove to America that if you don't give up on love, eventually you'll find it. 
And you made me feel better, like I wasn't just some faceless citizen of Bachelor Nation. I read Russian literature, I thought to myself. I'm just smugly observing this show until the next commercial, when I will begin my scholarly analysis. But then, I kept watching, through after the final rose. Just three hours. Anna, I don't have one unkind word to say about you. Because I haven't read you. Perhaps it's just not our time. There will come a day, probably, when I get a hankering for a bleak 864-page novel translated from Russian. But until that day, back to the shelves you go. I tried to look up goodbye in Russian, but it's really hard to spell. So just goodbye, Annie. Writer and librarian Annie Spence, reading from her new book, Dear Fahrenheit 451. You'll find another of her pieces at dinnerpartydownload.org. It's a slightly scandalous love letter to Judy Bloom's novel Forever. I'm blushing already. And Mm -hmm. that's the Dinner Party Download for this week. Next week, tune in to hear Michael McDonald. Yes, that Michael McDonald. He'll provide us with a soundtrack for your next get-together, assuming that get-together is on a yacht. Ah, can't wait. As always, you can keep the cultural conversation going with us on Twitter. Our handle is Dinner Party DNLD. Or if you happen to be in Greater Phoenix, you can converse with us in person. Mm. We'll be hosting a real life dinner party there Monday, September 18th. For details, check out tickets.kjzz.org. Our show wouldn't happen without senior producer Jackson Musker, associate producers James Kim and Krista Ripple, associate digital producer Christina Lopez, intern Emerald Douglas, and engineer Drew Jostad. Till next time, bon appetit. <laughs> <laughs> 